Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. again. Glad to have you back as we continue exploring this month's theme, Emerging Societies. Last week we talked about Rome from our earliest evidence of societies all the way up to the official founding of the Roman Republic. This month we're going to go on over to Japan. But first I want to set the stage for what would emerge as Japan, so we're going to go way back to the Jomon era, which began in 10,000 BCE at the end of the Ice Age. Up to this time, there was a land bridge connecting Japan to East Asia. Only when the ice began to melt did water levels rise to form the Japanese archipelago and separate it from East Asia. As we progress through this era and approach the Yayoi era, which begins around 400 BCE, although new evidence suggests it might have begun as early as 1000 BCE, we are again looking to archaeological information to learn the history of the people who emerged there. Now before we get started, I want to make a quick note on pronunciation. I've done my best to understand how certain names and places and other words are pronounced, but I also do understand that the ones I've never heard, I may be pronouncing incorrectly. So I apologize for the ones that I do, and if you happen to know the correct pronunciation, please feel free to drop a comment, send a message, and let me know so that I'll have it for any future ventures into Japan. Now back to the Jomon era. The rising water levels led the people of this area to settle in one place. The availability of fish meant there wasn't really any reason for them to move around. They would forage and develop the bow and arrow to hunt small game nearby, but otherwise stuck to the fish. Settling meant that they built permanent housing for themselves, and these houses were actually subterranean or built underground with only the roof visible above, and are referred to as pit houses. Inside the house, they made use of wooden posts to create and maintain the structural integrity of the room, and these were typically round or possibly an oval shape with a main structural pillar in the center. Naturally, as the central pillar, this was placed in the widest and deepest hole to guarantee the structure remained strong. The roofs themselves were covered with straw, some types of grass, or other readily available vegetation. This thatched roof was created wider than the pit so that water and other debris flowed away from it and ensured that the inside remained dry. One of the benefits of these pit houses was warmth. Being underground provided some natural heat and insulation, to which they added with a hearth. This served not only to provide heat, but also to cook food as well. Another potential benefit of the fire was to keep bugs out. Just like today, they would be drawn not only to the food being cooked, but also anything the residents were keeping stored inside the house. To avoid a dangerous buildup of smoke from the hearth, the roof itself had openings that were covered by the roof materials so the smoke was able to get out, but the rain couldn't get in. Interestingly enough, the concept of building a house with walls, pillars, and a roof is similar to what we see elsewhere, but the Jomon era people build down into the ground instead of entirely above it. The same ideas for innovations, but with a societal variation. The last point I want to address in the Jomon era is how they handled death. Evidence we've discovered shows that the Jomon people respected the deceased and gave them burials. Some of these burials were individual, but multiple communal graves have been found. 
The deceased were sometimes buried with accessories, pottery, or other items, and the most notable involvement of pottery was when small bodies were buried in jars. Some of these bodies would have likely been children or babies that didn't survive. While it's sad to think about, it demonstrates how important burial rituals were to the Jomon people and how they respected the dead of any age. Keep this in mind going forward as we'll be revisiting the topic. Now, as I mentioned in the beginning, there is debate on when the Yayoi era actually began. Some argue as early as 1000 BCE, while others argue as late as 300 BCE. This is due to advancement in radiocarbon dating technology similar to how the Capitoline Wolf statue I posted last week, which had been originally dated to the Etruscans in the 5th century BCE, is now believed to be from the 11th or 12th century CE. In a way, it's a part of what makes history so fascinating. It's not a static discipline because new technology and new evidence allows us to learn new things and, where necessary, revise what we've already learned. In my own education, I was taught that the Yayoi era began in 400 BCE, which falls within this debated time range, so for our purposes, I'm going to use that as our starting point. This time period brings significant changes to the region. Changes in the climate caused a transition to an agricultural society. The most notable agricultural change was the cultivation of wet rice. The origin of Yayoi culture itself is another point that is currently debated and has been for a long time. The earliest archaeological evidence is in Kyushu, where the trade items establish a connection between coastal fishing communities and nearby Korea. These date back into the Jomon period, but are not the only influences we find in the formation of this era. Chinese influences in ideas and technology emerge in this time as well, brought on by Chinese immigrants who may have been fleeing from troubles occurring in China at the time. The irrigated rice cultivation was one such influence brought from China and spread almost to the northern tip of Honshu, Japan's largest and most populated island. Villages in Yayoi are still similar to Jomon, but with some notable changes and additions. With the shift to agriculture, people need somewhere safe to store the harvest year-round while protecting it from various threats. One threat to the harvest was water on the ground. The roof protected from the falling rain, but they now had to consider water pooling around this storage building and seeping inside, potentially damaging any harvested crops. Another big one was rats. So to counter these and other risks, the warehouse was elevated up on pillars. Additionally, elevated watchtowers were now found inside some of these villages. This isn't the only notable change. The next one might sound a bit familiar. Yagoi villages started surrounding themselves with walls. With this new culture and new storage for the harvest came an increased danger from other people who might try to attack the village. They did also serve to protect against animals that might have been attracted to the new village. Some villages also added a ditch to help their defenses, and in some cases there would be a small hill or ditch on the inside of the wall as well, allowing for multiple layers of defense. I've posted some information on a village called Yoshinogari that has been extensively excavated and studied. It should prove interested if you wanted to get a better idea of what these villages were like. Moving on to the social structure, Yagoi brings with it some social stratification. Where Jomon was characterized by a more equal structure, we're now finding bodies in the sturdier pottery developed in this time. Again, there is respect and focus on the dead. Cemeteries are created in or near villages, but now people of greater importance are getting different burials. So again, keep in mind the respect for the dead and the natures of burials. 
The late Yayoi era, beginning in the 1st century CE, is where we'll start to find the emergence of kingdoms and written record. However, this writing isn't really occurring in Japan just yet. Rather, some in China are writing about encounters with the people in Japan. The Chinese had a strong emphasis on written history, with records recorded by each dynasty. These accounts of the Japanese are included at the end of these histories, more akin to a footnote or an afterthought, but they still provide us with important information about the emerging Japanese society. So we have their records, but there's something very important to keep in mind. Being that these earliest historical records are written by the Chinese and not the Japanese, we have to take into account that they are written from an external view. There's a sort of cultural filter that we have to look through. To start with, this record from the Kingdom of Wei is titled Accounts of the Eastern Barbarians and was written in 297 CE. Already, this gives you an idea of how the Japanese are viewed. The Chinese refer to Japan using the term Wa. We don't really know why, but they did. The record speaks of how the Japanese lived in the Yate Yaoi period. To start, it confirms that there were diplomatic relations between Japan and China, stating that 30 communities interacted with them. This is down from the 100 recorded in the previous dynasty, indicating that, for whatever reason, they seemed to cease their communications with China. Whatever that might have been, we do know that diplomacy was active. The record goes on to speak of mild weather, the people eating raw vegetables and using their fingers instead of utensils. It also comes back to the burial rites I keep bringing up. In this record, it refers to the coffins and graves. It also claims that mourning was observed for more than 10 days. To quote the text itself, When a person dies, they prepare a single coffin without an outer one. They cover the graves with earth to make a mound. When death occurs, mourning is observed for more than 10 days, during which period they do not eat meat. The head mourners wail and lament while friends sing, dance, and drink liquor. When the funeral is over, all members of the family go into the water to cleanse themselves in a bath of purification. Interesting details, and well in keeping with the seriousness with which funerals and burials were treated. Even if it includes some exaggerations or inaccuracies, which we have to consider since these records were written by Chinese chroniclers focused on Chinese interests, it helps confirm the continued importance of burials. The record continues on to discuss a man called the Morning Keeper brought on voyages to China. I don't really want to focus on him much except to say that the man chosen for this role was described as filthy and neglected. If the journey went well, he received valuables and slaves, whereas if the voyage went poorly, he was blamed and executed for not properly observing the taboos. They also refer to the Japanese use of divination through bones and objects such as tortoise shells. Men are said to have had multiple wives, and people could live 80 to even 100 years old. Taxes are mentioned, as well as the granaries discussed earlier. These are aspects of the day-to-day -day Japanese life found in this Chinese record. Next, it moves to leadership and warfare, which will also take us into the realm of legend as myth, as it pertains to this emerging society we're discussing. According to the record, Japan suffered 70 or 80 years of warfare with a man as the ruler. So next, they selected a female ruler named Pimiko, also known as Himiko. She ruled a territory known as Yamati, later renamed Yamato. The Chinese, however, saw her as a ruler of all Japan, not just one territory. She was said to be a shamaness or high priestess, not uncommon among the region. To quote the text once more, 
she occupied herself with magic and sorcery, bewitching the people. Very clear what the Chinese thought the rulers of Japan were capable of. After becoming ruler, she became hidden from the people, attended by 1,000 female attendants and one man. The man served as the medium of communication between Pimiko and the people. Her residence is described as a grand palace with towers, stockades, and ever-vigilant armed guards to protect her. Her younger brother also worked with her in affairs of state. She sent an embassy to the Chinese emperor who officially declared her a friend of Wei. Her official title became Queen of Wa, Friendly to Wei. With this declaration, she was sent an official gold seal with a purple ribbon. Finally, the emperor's edict closed with the following. We expect you, O queen, to rule your people in peace and to endeavor to be devoted and obedient. The last line gives us insight into where the Chinese positioned Japanese in relation to themselves. Their emperor was seen as absolute with no ruler of any region ranked higher. The close of this edict declaring her a friend also demonstrates that fact, with Emperor Wei seeing Pimiko as a queen, but still lower than himself, and thus expected to meet his expectations. When the time of Pimiko's death came in the mid-200s CE, the record claims a great mound was raised and more than a hundred paces in diameter, not a precise measure, but roughly equivalent to 150 meters or one-tenth of a mile. Not only did she die, but so did over 100 male and female attendants. This is a strange number, given that she supposedly had 1,000 female attendants and only one male, though it could just be that Chinese didn't record anything between the edict and her death around 10 years later. After her death, there was said to be a king who the people wouldn't follow. More than 1,000 people were killed in assassinations and outright killings in the t years that followed. Next, a 13-year-old relative of Pimiko named Io became the leader and peace was restored. Chinese ambassador Zheng announced a proclamation that Io was ruler. Again, Chinese in charge. Alright, let's pick this apart. First and foremost is this. Pimiko does not appear in Japanese historical records. Only in the Chinese records we're working from on this matter. Bit curious, don't you think? I've been using the name Pimiko as it appears in the Wei Dynasty text. The other name I mentioned is Himiko. In the archaic Japanese, this name means sun child, likely a reference to her descent from the sun goddess Amaterasu in the Shinto religion. Later on, all Japanese rulers were identified of the same descent. Already this has a myth feel to it, if not a founding one. With the Chinese receiving 30 communities and recognizing Pimiko as ruler of Japan, she may have led those 30 and been more powerful than the rest of the 100 spread across Japan, who wouldn't have been as unified. Again, for such a powerful ruler, it's strange that she's only mentioned in the Chinese histories. There is debate over where exactly she ruled as well as the site of her burial mound. The burial mound is reflective of the rites of the time, but where it is located remains unknown, if it exists at all. Pimiko in her entirety is a huge mystery, right down to whether or not she even existed. We can't even turn to archaeological evidence because there is none. Yet she still holds a place in our discussion because this history is only recorded through the Chinese dynasty. Do you think she was real? Just a myth? Somewhere in between? It's still talked about today. Who knows what we'll find tomorrow? Whatever the case may be, her recorded death takes us into the Kofun and Yamato state, from 250 CE to 600 CE. 
This is the era in which we'll finish today, and as we get into it, we're going to look into Japan's founding myth, which requires us now to return to the first century BCE. Chronologically, it's out of order, but as we go through it, I think it'll start to make sense why I put it here. Founding myth might not be quite the right term for it in that the myth doesn't cover the founding of Japan from the beginning. Rather, it establishes the divine right for the ruling family of Japan to be in power and names the first emperor of Japan. The myth is a part of the Shinto religion, and the written accounts in the Kojiki, meaning Record of Ancient Matters, and the Nihon Shoki, meaning the Chronicles of Japan, were both written in the 8th century, long after the events depicted took place. Isn't it funny how these myths and legends always seem to spring up after the events to justify how society is being run at the time? Sounds like possibly a good theme for the future. Anyway, the Shinto religion is one of multiple gods. We've already mentioned the sun goddess Amaterasu when discussing Pimiko. Amaterasu is queen of the kami, the Japanese term for gods or divine spirits, and ruler of the universe. Perhaps most importantly, she is the embodiment of the rising sun and of Japan itself. It is through her that emperors derive their right to rule. That is, only those who are directly descended from her can assume the role of ruler of Japan, thus making the entire imperial line one ruling family. To show us how that comes to be, the myth travels all the way back to the Age of Gods, a time before the legendary first emperor Jimu, who was born in 711 BCE. According to the legend, during the Age of Gods, Amaterasu was one of three siblings. Tsukuyomi, the god of the moon, was her husband until the events of the myth led her to banish him and forever separate the moon and the sun. He doesn't really play a part in this founding myth we're going to discuss today. Her other brother, Susanoo, unruly god of the sea and storms, is the focus here. This pair created the ancestors of the imperial line through a rather interesting method. After Amaterasu became concerned over Susanoo's ascension to heaven, fearing he harbored some sort of ill intent, the two met at opposite banks of the tranquil river of heaven. He handed Amaterasu his saber, broken into three parts. She washed them in the true pool well of heaven, crunched them, and blew them away. From this, three females were born. Next, Amaterasu handed Susanoo a string of 500 jewels from her hair, which he washed, chewed up, and blew away. He repeated this process with the jewels from her headdress, those on her left arm, and those on her right arm. In all, this process produced five males. Now, from this rather unique creation ritual, Amaterasu claimed the males and declared the females to be Susanoo's. She said this was because, though the males were born, if you can call it that, from Susanoo's mouth, they were created from her objects. So the females were born from Susanoo's saber and therefore were his. It's kind of a flip in gender roles when you think about the establishment of ruling lineage. Susanoo was involved, but Amaterasu is the one who gains priority. When establishing the divine right to rule, it is her bloodline that matters, not necessarily his. Now, of these eight ancestors, Oshihomimi's line takes us closer to Jimu by producing Amaterasu's grandson, Ninigi. He was born when Amaterasu was planning to send one of her sons to Japan to bring peace. Knowing of this event, the son convinced her to send Ninigi instead. To signify that he had the divine right to rule, Amaterasu sent with him three objects representing the three primary virtues called the three imperial regalia. A mirror called Yata no Kagami, which represents wisdom. A sword called 
Kusanagi no Tsurugi, which represents valor, and a curved jewel called Yasakani no Magatama, which represents benevolence. These items are said to be passed down from emperor to emperor, maintaining the divine line from Amaterasu all the way to today. From here, we'll move to Jimu. The Kojiki and Nihonshoki give his birth name as Kamu Yamato Iware Biko no Mikoto. He was descended from Ninigi on his father's side. His father, Ugaya Fukayayezu, <laughs> I hope they got that at least close to right, was descended from Ninigi's son Huri, which is much easier to pronounce, and I still hope I got it right. <laughs> Jimu is said to have been born in 711 BCE and ascended as the first emperor in 660, ruling until 585 when he died at the age of 126 years old. During his life before becoming emperor, he is said to have traveled through Japan, fought and lost to a local chieftain before having a rematch against him later in Yamato in which he was victorious. It was here in Yamato that Jimu ascended the throne of Japan. Or so says the legend. It's an interesting one, with more details found in the Kojiki and the Nihon Shoki. Notice where Jimu became emperor, Yamato. Remember what I said Jimu's birth name was, or at least the first part? Kamu Yamato. It's no coincidence. Just like it's likely no coincidence that this is the same region Pimiko supposedly rules later on. The Kojiki was written after the Kofun era and the Yamato state, but is intended to establish the divine right of the Yamato family to rule. So basically, it's a myth for the benefit of the rulers. Not an uncommon trend, and in this case, one that persists to modern times. Now, Jimu was a myth. We have no evidence that he ever existed besides the story. The first emperor who can actually verify through historical evidence is Emperor Kinmei, who ruled from 539 to 571 CE, right here in the Kofun era. To put it into perspective, we're still 140 years away from the Kojiki being written and 150 years from the Nihon Shoki. So this myth, written over 100 years after the first verifiable emperor, went back to around 1200 years prior to establish this divine right to rule. Hopefully now you see why we needed to get to the Kofun and Yamato state before discussing the myth. We needed to reach the emperors before we could actually justify their rule. Speaking of justifying their rule, let's talk about the three imperial regalia Amaterasu gave Ninigi. Being a myth, the location of these original objects is uncertain, if the originals existed at all. Some folklore claims that the sword was lost in a battle at sea in the 1100 CE, after which replicas were created. It is currently located in the Atsuta Shrine in Nagoya, but no one is allowed to see it so there's no way for the possible authenticity of the sword to be examined. The mirror was burned in 1040 CE and is unknown if it was completely destroyed, but regardless, a replica was created and still exists. Any surviving parts of the original mirror are housed at the Issei Grand Shrine. Finally, we have the jewel, quite possibly the only original to still exist. When talking about this jewel, it's not like an emerald or ruby that you may be thinking of. It's a bead shaped like a comma, possibly made out of a stone like jade. Whatever the status of the originals or replicas, they were still presented to Emperor Naruhito on May 1st, 2019, though the public was still not allowed to see them. Alright then, we've established Japan, 
brought the society forward to the Kofun era and Yamato period through 600 CE, explored the myth granting emperors the divine right to rule, and now I want to close with the topic the Kofun era itself is known for, tombs. Yes, we're going to talk about death again. The Kofun area actually refers to burial mounds. They are what define this time period. We talked about respect for the dead and burial rites through each era. You could sort of look at the Kofun era as the point where the Japanese reached the upper extremes of tomb building. If you've already seen what I posted on social media, you have an idea of the extreme I'm talking about. To start with, Kofun tombs are built for just one person. They no longer buried multiple people in one place like we saw in the Yayoi era. This will be even more significant in a moment. The tombs themselves were one of three shapes, round, square, and a keyhole. The round shape is the most common of the three, and square is also common. Keyhole is less common and was created through the combination of round and square versions. They are also larger than the other versions. Over 150,000 of these single occupant tombs from this era have been found. These tombs were created with hollow burial chamber, some even surrounded by water to protect them. Now just consider the labor involved in creating these tombs back then. It was no easy feat. It's indicative of the respect shown for the individuals being buried in them and how powerful these individuals were in life. And of course, size matters. Which takes us to Emperor Nintoku and what is probably one of the most memorable things from our pre-modern Japan course in college. <laughs> Apparently I was really focused on death in that course. Traditionally, Nintoku ruled from 313 to 399 CE, though those dates may be inaccurate as he is one of the emperors we cannot historically verify. His keyhole-shaped tomb, also called the Daisen Kofun, is an incredible 486 meters, or almost 1600 feet, long, and 35 meters, or 100 feet, high. And that size doesn't include the three moats around it. That's twice as long as the base of the Great Pyramid of Giza. And it's all for one guy. Just one. It's estimated that it took 2,000 men working daily for 16 years to build this tomb. It now sits comfortably as one of the three largest tombs in the world. The other two being the mausoleum of the first Qin Emperor in China and the Great Pyramid of Khufu in Egypt. On the image I've shared on social media, I've also indicated multiple other tombs within the region of Nintoku's tomb. Note how they all sit right in the middle of Osaka, untouched even as the city grew up around them. Looking in the aerial map, you can tell how it really is a premium location, yet that respect we've been looking at all along has kept them protected. This was the peak of the building of these grand tombs, because at the end of the Kofun period in 538 CE, Buddhism arrived in Japan, which brought new views, including a shift away from the grand burial tombs. These changes carried forward through the Yamato state with the first historically verifiable female ruler, Empress Suiko, openly encouraging acceptance during her reign starting in 592 CE and continuing on to later Japanese history that is beyond our current focus. And thus concludes our discussion on the emergence of Japan. We've covered a lot of ground, more than the other societies in this theme in terms of the number of years. There's so much history to talk about. We started all the way back when the Japanese archipelago formed and made it all the way to the 6th and 7th century CE where we met the first legendary ruler of Japan, established the divine lineage of emperors, met the first historically verifiable emperor of Japan, 
and discovered some incredibly large tombs. Next week, the Aztecs and the Incas will have to play nice and share their time in our theme. I hope you'll tune in to see how it goes.